I'm Tim Keller, and I'm here to talk to you in the middle of your uh, overall theme of being change makers. I want to talk to you about what it takes to change yourself inwardly, deeply, enduringly. You're not going to be able to change the world or change society or change your church or change anything if you do not know how to change yourself permanently, deeply, enduringly. I've been around too long and I've seen all sorts of promising young Christian movements and leaders go down because of character flaws. Things in people that had been there and they didn't know they were there and they blew up on them and that was the end of that movement. Because they were changing out here. They read books on how to change uh, institutions, how to change churches, how to, how to change everything, but not how to change themselves. So to talk about how to change deeply and inwardly and enduringly, I, I come to this with passion and I come to this with a certain amount of uh, 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 excitement, yes, but more sobriety today than excitement. I don't think I'm going to be telling you things that you want to hear, and I don't think I'm going to be telling you things that perhaps you're used to hearing either. So be patient with me. So first of all, how to change deeply. You need to know four things, and you need to do four things. You need to know them, and you need to do them. The four things you need to know have to do with biblical teaching, four truths. The things you have to do have to do with prayer. Four things to know about biblical teaching, four things to do with prayer. So, ready? Here we go. Here's the four things you've got to know. And you've got to know these well if you're going to see inward change. You have to, first of all, know the magnitude of your sin problem. Uh, I know you've heard this before, but I'm going to try to say something that just goes a little deeper Uh, than we are want to go. You need to know the magnitude of your sin problem. So in Romans chapter 7, Paul makes a statement. He says, I have the desire, this is the English Standard Version translation, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Okay, why not? I know what is right to do, but I, I can't do it. Why not? And then he says in verse 20, Now, I do what I do not want to do because it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So Paul, notice Paul says that sin is not something that comes from outside, though there can be bad influences, and sin is also not something that actually uh, is a kind of temporary situation that I'm in and then I, I, you know, I move on. He says sin is constitutive to my nature. It's in me. It dwells in me. There's a presence in me. And uh, it's part of me. Now, that's Romans 7. But there's a more, I think, uh, less well-known but more frightening passage in the Bible about sin. It's in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, This is after Adam and Eve have been cast out of the garden. They've got two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain is beginning to get very, very... Uh, 
uh, angry at, at Abel, and God comes to Cain, seeing what's going on in his heart, and God comes to Cain and says this, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. If you do not do what you should do, if you do not do right, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must master it. What an alarming metaphor for God to use. It tells you two things at least about sin, the thing that Paul says is dwelling in us. First of all, it says the the crouching idea It's saying sin is hiding. To crouch down is a word that means to get very low, out of sight. And so it says, the first thing we're told is that your sins, whatever it is, your your flaws, whatever they are, always present themselves to you as considerably smaller and less potent than they really, really are. None of us know how serious our sin is. We make excuses. We don't look carefully at it. I'm not stingy, I'm prudent. I'm not, uh, I'm not ruthless, I'm just, I'm a sharp businessman. Uh, you know, I'm not uh, irritable, I have high standards. And uh, yeah, those are funny, but we do that, we do that. So first of all, your sin, especially the, the sins that can most destroy you, you are somewhat blind to. You can't see them. It's crouching. But the other thing that this word crouching means, as maybe you've heard, the the, the term crouching is a term that's used for animals. See, in many parts of the world, animals know you're coming out of the door, so they crouch down. That means they're coiled to spring. They, They don't want you to see them, of course. They're hiding, but they're not just hiding. They're coiled to spring and they're coming. And what God is saying is your sins, the sin nature in you, wants to take you out, wants to take you over, wants to disempower you, you, wants to put you in a position where you can't stop it. Let's put it like this. What Paul is saying, what Genesis 4 is saying, is that when you sin, it doesn't go away. When you sin, It creates a presence within your life, a shadow within your life, something that's there that slowly weakens your ability to be who you ought to be. When you're selfish instead of, when you are selfish instead of choosing to serve, when you are worried instead of choosing to trust, when you pay back instead of choosing to forgive, when you Indulge lustful thoughts for somebody who's not actually your spouse. When you, um, when you tell a half-truth instead of choosing to tell the whole truth. Every time you do that, you are creating a presence that remains in your life and that distorts your life and makes you harder to do the right thing the next time because it's crouching. It's trying to take you out. John Owen wrote a book that every Christian leader ought to read because it's unique in the history of Christian literature in spite of how hard it is to read, uh, written in the 17th century, but get, get some kind of modern abridged paraphrase to read it. It's called On the Mortification of Sin. We'll get back to that term in a minute. 
And what John Owen there says is, be killing your sin or sin will be killing you. I told you I'm sober here today and none of you are smiling or humming or going, mmm, either. I don't hear those noises and, and, and it wouldn't be appropriate. Do you understand the magnitude of your sin? You'll never change. You'll never get inward change unless you understand the magnitude of your sin. That's the first thing. The second thing you've got to know is how that sin can't be overcome. It's extremely important to know how your sin can't be overcome. And it can't be overcome by doubling down through acts of the will to obey the moral law. I am not saying that Christians shouldn't obey the moral law. I'm saying that your sin, your sin nature, you cannot get at that. You cannot uproot it. You cannot wither it. You can't incapacitate it. You can't keep it from taking you out simply by doubling down through acts of the will to comply with the moral law. Paul in Romans, staying in Romans 7 for a second, Paul in Romans 7 verse 5 says that when the law of God came to him, it aroused sin in him. It didn't actually squash sin, it aroused sin in him. Now commentators have been debating what in the world he talks about there. Because surely when you start to obey the law, uh, you stop lying, you stop cheating, you stop, uh, you don't commit adultery, you, uh, you don't steal. I mean, when you're obeying the law, surely that is uh, squelching sin. It's certainly not uh, destroy. it's certainly not uh, arousing sin, is it? But Paul says, yes, it arouses sin. Now, how does that happen? Well, most commentators say it's probably in one or two ways. The first way is maybe the more obvious way, and it's the way that St. Augustine so uh, vividly portrayed in his confessions when he said, in his confessions, he, re- he remembers a time in which he stole pears from the local orchard. There was a, uh, there was a pear tree and uh, it wasn't in his orchard, it wasn't his family's pear tree, but he climbed up over the fence and he uh, stole the pears. And later on he did theological reflection on the pears. And he said, there, there's some, a couple of curious things about why he stole the pears. Number one, he wasn't hungry. Number two, he didn't like pears. Okay, so why did he steal the pears? And he looks back on it, he says, the reason I wanted to steal the pears was because I was told, don't steal anybody's pears, don't steal the pears. It was forbidden, and that's why I wanted to do it. If they hadn't said anything about it, why would I have wanted pears? But he actually, in a you know, very classic text, what he says is, the moral law, instead of shriveling up the part of my life that hates being told how to live, instead, the moral law aggravates it, stirs it up. Why? Because here's what sin is, according to the Bible. Oh, there's, there's more than one biblical definition, but sin is rebelling against God by putting yourself in the place of God in your own life, living for your own glory, deciding what's right or wrong for yourself, deciding how you want to live your life for yourself, living to, for your own glory and your own pleasure. Sin is rebelling against God by putting yourself in the place of God. And what Augustine said was when I was forbidden to do something, 
all the law did was stir up that part of me that says nobody has the right to tell me what to do. In other words, it actually aggravated and increased sin. But there's another way to read that, and I think this is complimentary. It's not, uh, it's, it's not I'm not disagreeing with what uh, Augustine said. When Paul says that the law actually aroused sin in me, sometimes that means it actually arouses moral disobedience. By telling me not to steal, I want to steal. But there's probably a more subtle way. When religion and morality comes in and grabs hold of a person who says, I want to be my own God, I want to be my own savior, my own Lord, my own master, and when religion and morality comes in and says, no, you must obey God's law, you must be very religious, sin takes another form. The law does not all by itself, just the force of the law does not all by itself take out that impulse to be your own Savior and Lord. If anything, it aggravates it and hides it. It makes it crouch because it takes another form. Let me give you a quick idea. I remember back in college when I was a new Christian, there was a guy on campus who uh, was not a believer, not a Christian at all, and he was very well known for being sexually very active. And he, uh, he was constantly uh, bedding down various women on campus. He was good looking. Uh, he was very proud of his sexual prowess. And then suddenly he becomes a Christian. He converts. And he comes into our campus fellowship and he begins to say, oh no, this is amazing. Uh, I, uh, I've really changed and I don't ever want to no more sex for me, no more, I'm going to be chased, uh, no sex outside of marriage. And uh, he uh, cleaned up and everybody said, wow, he's become a Christian, this is great, what a, what a testimony. But within a few months, we found that in every small group, uh, he, even though he didn't know anything about the Bible, he always tried to take over the group. Uh, in every organizational meeting we had, he was always trying to exert his own power and authority. Uh, he was constantly getting into fights with people. He was really trying to, trying to take charge of the fellowship. And when people resisted, finally got really angry and he left. And in hindsight, we realized something. Sex wasn't his thing. It was power because everybody knew that once he actually got the girl to bed, he lost interest in her. It wasn't sex, it wasn't really love, it was power. He felt alive. He felt significant when he could get people to do what he wanted. That was, in a sense, his salvation. He wouldn't call it that. But that was his significance. That was his, what made him alive. That's what gave his life meaning. That's what really made him exhilarated. And he used sex in order to get that. But then when he became religious, I wouldn't say he became a Christian, though he said he believed in Jesus and he, Jesus died for my sins and I'm living for Christ and I'm surrendered to him. You know what began to happen? Now he, he didn't change a thing. Now he was getting power through religion. And boy, getting power through religion is great because we religious people have the truth. We're right. Oh, that feels good. And, and so what happened was he comes on in and instead of actually having the fundamental, the fundamental sin of his heart, 
which is, I'm my own Savior, I'm my own Lord, I am my own master, I'm the captain of my own fate. It just took a religious form. He was using religion as a way to get control of his life, as a way to get power over other people, as a way to be his own Savior and Lord. Jesus wasn't his Savior and Lord when he was a Lothario, when he was sleeping with every woman, but he also, Jesus wasn't his Lord, even when he was calling people to believe in Jesus Christ and come forward and get saved. You see, the law all by itself can actually aggravate sin and even hide it. There's two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. One by being very bad and breaking the law. The other is by being very, very good and keeping the law and saying, look at me. Everybody needs to listen to me. Look, God, you're in my debt. Look, people, you're in my debt. Look at how important I am. Look how right I am. Look what a great minister I am. Same thing. Don't you see now that just doubling down on the moral law doesn't change you? So first thing you have to know is the magnitude of the sin. Secondly, you have to know how that sin can't be overcome. Thirdly, you need to know why that sin can't be overcome. You have to understand why that just doubling down and obeying and trying to squish your your sin under obedience and self-control and willpower, why it doesn't work. Jonathan Edwards, um, especially in his book, The Nature of True Virtue, gets into this very important book. Uh, very hard to read, but here's the, here's the gist of it. He says, it's, we're really, it's really good that most people in the world are trying to be moral. Most people in the world think it's a bad idea to lie, so they try not to. Most people in the world think it's bad to, to break promises. It's bad to trample the poor. It's bad to uh, steal. It's certainly bad to kill. It's, most people in the world are trying to be moral, and... He says, that's great, because actually the world would be a really miserable place if, if, uh, if that wasn't the case. But, he says, you do realize that in almost all cases, people are doing that for themselves. The reason they're being moral, the reason they're being truthful, for example, is not just to please God, and certainly not just because the truth is wonderful. They're telling the truth because they're afraid of being caught, because they want to have self-respect, because they want to command respect of others, because they want God to hear their prayers, because they want God to take them into the afterlife, because they're trying to avoid the consequences that might happen, because they want to feel superior to other people. In other words, fear, pride, and a desire to control things. If I'm a good person, then God has to hear my prayers, and other people have to respect me, and I can respect myself. So interestingly enough, (laughs) Jonathan never says, Even though you're living a good life, you're doing it for very selfish motives. And because you're doing it for very selfish motives, because you're doing everything for yourself, you know, you may be out there helping the poor, but honestly, you need to help the poor in order that you can feel like I'm a good person because I help the poor, which means you're using the poor. You're not loving the poor for themselves. You're not loving the poor for God's sake. You're loving the poor for your sake. You might get into the pulpit and say, I'm going to start preaching the Word of God. And yet the real reason you're doing that is you really desperately want to feel like I'm a worthwhile person and people need me and I see people's lives being changed. Are you doing that for God? Are you doing that for the people? Or are you doing it for the, so that you can feel like a worthwhile person? Now look, I know the motives are mixed. And Jonathan Edwards is saying motives are mixed, but the point is there's a huge, huge 
part of our motivation, which is completely selfish and all that. And here's what the signs are that your motivation is actually coming from a heart that is riven with sin, putting yourself in the place of God, being your own Savior and Lord. One of the marks of that is that you can't admit your own flaws. If somebody criticizes you, oh, no, no, you, get, you, you cannot admit who you are. You know why you can't admit who you are? Because your whole self-regard is based on the idea that you're a pretty good person or a hip person or a decent person or a hardworking person or something. So if somebody comes along and shows you not to be that, you just melt down. You can't admit who you are. A second, a second bad sign that your motives are mixed and that your morality is actually coming from selfishness and a desire to be your own Savior and Lord from sin. A second is that actually whenever you do fail, you are so vulnerable to anxiety and guilt and shame. You're basing your whole idea of, see for example, one of the ways you know that you're preaching is a way for you to get self-worth, a way for you to stay in control of your life, a way for you to be uh, uh, feeling good about yourself, a way for you to be in the place of God, be your own Savior and Lord, is that if you're not successful or not very successful, it doesn't destroy you, it doesn't decimate you, criticism doesn't, doesn't bother you, small crowds don't bother you. Because the crowd, you know, if, if you were doing it for Jesus, if you really were doing it out of a very different heart, which we're going to describe in one second, it wouldn't bother you, but it does bother you. Why? Because you're not doing it for them. See, if you just had 50 people, and that's all you had, and it wasn't growing, and they loved you, and you were sharing the Word of God, that should be enough. But if you can't stand that, no, it's got to grow, it's got to be bigger, you've got to have more and more people. Why? Or what about when you get criticism for your preaching? Is it something you can say, well, it's hard, but I can grow from that, or is it just devastating to you? See, if, you're, if you basically are trying to change yourself through doubling down in obedience to the moral law, you're probably doing it out of a desire to be your own Savior and Lord, in which case you will not be able to admit your flaws. You'll be very susceptible uh, and fragile susceptible to guilt and to shame and a sense of failure. Thirdly, you will tend to look down your nose at people who don't have your identity factor. See, if your identity is based on I'm a hardworking person, you have to despise people you think of as lazy. If your identity is based on being, making money, you have to look down your nose at people who just haven't made as much money. What's the matter? They're just not as smart. They're just not as hardworking, see? If, you, if your identity is based on having sound moral doctrine, you have the true doctrine, then you're not kind to people who don't. You just, you just disdain them. You, you laugh at them. See? And by the way, the pressure of maintaining a self-image because of all this effort to be a good person, usually you need a release valve and so you indulge in secret sins and you don't let people know. Well, then what will help? What will help? I mean, if just doubling down on the moral law and doubling down through willpower basically takes your sin and makes it worse, or at least puts it into uh, more hidden forms, more difficult forms to see, 
more insidious forms. What, then what? What will work? Here's what will work. The very structure of the identity of your heart has to change. The very structure of the identity of your heart has to change. Let me give you three kinds of societies. Let's talk about a religious society, maybe a traditional society, and maybe a secular society. In a religious society, your self-image is based on the fact that your doctrine is right, and you go to church, and you don't smoke and drink and chew tobacco, and, or girls go with girls that do. You, you, in other words, you, you got all the moral rules. In that case, either you are proud and self-righteous because you think you're living up, or you're decimated and always feeling guilty because you're not. Let's go into a traditional culture. Traditional cultures are very family-oriented. Big parts of Asia, big parts of Latin America, Africa, big parts of other parts of the world, very family-oriented. And the way you get your self-image, the way you get your self-significance is not by uh, so much being religious, it's by fulfilling your role in your family. You gotta be a good son, a good daughter, a good father, a good mother, a good member of the tribe. You've got these prescribed social roles and you've got to live up. That's how you know you're a good person. But an identity based on traditional social roles also leaves you very susceptible to guilt and shame and always being crushed because you can never be a good enough you know, to satisfy your parents' expectations. And I'm sure there's people in this room that know about that. Because that's your world, that's your identity. And then the secular world, uh, there's a, uh, a French uh, author, named uh, de Baton, who's written a book called Status Anxiety. And he says, in traditional cultures, it tells you just who you have to be, but in modern Western cultures, egalitarian cultures, meritocratic cultures, you decide who you want to be. You define yourself. You decide who you want to be, and you determine what is right or wrong for you, and you decide who you want to be, and you go get it. You achieve and you express your true self. And he says, whereas in traditional religious cultures, people are crushed with guilt, we here in free Western egalitarian societies are crushed with anxiety. And the reason we're crushed with anxiety is two reasons. One is because when you're told from the time you're little in the West, you need to make sure that you decide what you most want to do and then you do it because you find itself through self-expression. That's called expressive individualism. You get, you get your significance and identity through self-expression. Decide what is your deepest feelings and express them. The problem is your feelings contradict each other. Many feelings contradict other feelings. You're not really sure who the real you is. And then the other thing, of course, is it's very, very hard to achieve the thing you want to achieve. You're told you can be anything you want to be. I'm a, I'm, you know, I want to be a linebacker. And now I'm 22 years old. I'm five foot four. I'm 125 years, uh, pounds. And uh, everybody says, but if you really try, no, you can't. No, you can't. Don't. Don't do it. But how you're perceived matters. Christianity gets you off the roller coaster. It completely destroys, it takes you, you're not, no longer is your identity a religious identity. No longer is your identity a traditional identity. No longer is your identity a secular individualistic identity. No, no. William Holland, Let's, let me go back 200 years. William Holland was one of the uh, 
early Methodists, and he became, he and John Wesley and Charles Wesley and those people back in the 1700s were reading Martin Luther's commentary on the Galatians. And they were reading the preface, and he was talking about the fact that you're not saved by your achievements, by your performance, by living up to what your parents say, by your, you know, your moral and religious observances. No, no. It's something else. And William Holland tells about the night he got converted. It's a great little story. What he does is he says he was listening to Charles Wesley. This is what he says. He says, I was listening to Charles Wesley read the preface of Luther on Galatians aloud. And at the words, what? Have we then nothing to do? No, nothing. But except of him who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Did you get that? What have we nothing to do? No, nothing. But except God, except Jesus Christ, who God has made your wisdom and your righteousness and your sanctification and your redemption. You don't achieve it. It's a gift. In him you are sanctified. You are justified. You are redeemed. And he says, there came such a power over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with love and peace that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw our Savior. My companions, perceiving me so affected, fell on their knees and prayed. When I afterwards went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground I trod upon. And you know what? Almost the very same time, George Whitfield, one of those early Methodists, started preaching the gospel. And he started to say, you cannot build a righteousness of your own through your family. You cannot build a righteousness, a vindication, a self-image of your own through moral performance. It, it is a gift. Jesus Christ did it for you on the cross. Nathan Cole, 1743, a farmer in Middletown, Connecticut, showed up at an outdoor preaching uh, moment, a time in which George Whitfield was preaching the gospel in the fields of Connecticut, and he tells what happened. He says, my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness could not save me. Now, here's what, what's going on. That is a whole new self-image. That is a declaration that because of what Jesus Christ has done, you are already accepted in him. That turns everything upside down, and especially in this way. Do you know the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? It's kind of a Christian story. Dr. Jekyll did not know he had such a horrible, evil, Hyde, hideous side until he took a potion, thinking he was going to release his more aggressive, assertive side. Turned out the assertive side was Mr. Hyde, far more evil than Dr. Jekyll thought, but that's, that's what we've been saying. None of us know how evil, much evil is down there. And when Dr. Jekyll tried to, when he found out how evil Mr. Hyde was, how hideous he was, that's where the word Hyde comes from, he tried with all of his might, willpower, to suppress him and he couldn't. And of course, you know how it ends. What's interesting is we don't do that. We're, it's not our position to say, what are we going to do about the hideous self? How are we going to squelch it? How are we going to just try harder? No. Listen to this. Isaiah 52, 53. This is talking about Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. 
They were appalled at him. His appearance was disfigured beyond that of a man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. But he is pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds were healed. Jesus Christ, the most beautiful being in the, in the universe, became hideous. He became Mr. Hyde. He became hideous for us. We couldn't bear to look upon him. He took what we deserved. He got all of the punishment that our hideousness, our evil deserves. So that what? So that we might become beautiful, holy and spotless and without blemish in him. Now, you know what that means? When you see Jesus Christ losing his beauty to make you truly beautiful in God's eyes, that makes him beautiful. I mean, there's nothing more beautiful than someone who loses beauty just to bring you in. And that changes the fundamental identity of your heart. How can we treat someone who did that by sinning? How can we overwork when he's given us the real wealth? How can we tell a lie when he kept his promise, his integrity to the death in order to save us? And you see, it fills us up. We're not empty anymore. We're not needing to steal righteousness and, and, and self-worth from all these other things. We're filled, and now what we say is, I want to please you, just because I want to please you, out of love for you. Just because it's, you're beautiful and I want to please you, and that changes absolutely everything, including what's deep in the heart. Now listen, I told you there are four things, those are the four things you have to know. And you say, wait a minute, there's like no time left, what about the four things you have to do? Well, they're prayer. I'm, I'll tell you what they are, but I just wrote a book, or a book coming out in about a month, in which all these four things are there. And I said to myself, you know, why not talk about the stuff that I haven't written a book about and they can't read it, and why not <clears throat> give them a little bit less time on a book that they might be able to get and read? Here's four things. This will not, all the stuff I'm talking about will only change your life if it's worked into your life through prayer. You can say up here, oh, I know. I, listen, some years ago, there was a 16-year-old girl in my church and she was a Christian, and she understood Christianity pretty well. But, uh, uh, you know, she came to me, and she was really depressed, and uh, she was having trouble. She was having some boy trouble. And I, being a stupid 26-year-old pastor, said, well, you know, you're a Christian, right? Yes. You realize that you're going to live with God forever, and He loves you, and when He sees you, you're beautiful, no matter how you look to yourself. And your sins are forgiven and he's got adventures for you and he's got a purpose for you and you, you have gifts in your life and great things ahead and you're going to live with him forever in the new heavens and new earth. And you know what she said? What good is all that if you're not popular? Nobody, what, what good is that if no boy wants to date you? Now, what it meant was she agreed with all the things I said, but they were not real to her heart. And I bet almost every single person in this room is like that. You believe things that are not real to your heart because you do not know how in prayer to make them real to your heart. 
It takes years of prayer to make those things so real that they control you so you don't lie, so you're not angry, so you're not devastated by criticism, so you don't tend to get resentful, so you're not prone to self-pity, so you're not self-justifying in the way in which you treat people. That only happens when the things that I just said will deal with sin are worked into your life day in and day out, every morning, every evening. Here's four things about prayer. Do it. Motivate yourself and say, it's got to be done. If somebody said to you, you've got a fatal disease, almost fatal disease, but as long as you take a pill every night at 11 o'clock and never fail, you will live. But if you ever miss, by the morning you'll be dead. Would you forget? You would never forget. I'm telling you, prayer is as important as that. You do it, number one. Number two, you do it until it engages the affections, your heart. Martin Luther never said, just go to prayer. Meditate on the words of the Scripture till your heart catches fire, and then pray. Thirdly, look at your besetting sins in prayer. It's too horrible unless you adore God in prayer for His love and His joy and, and His greatness. Only after you've just gotten a great sense on your heart of how much he loves you, you need to turn and look at your heart at the worst, and it's called mortification. Mortification is not the John Owen term, it's an old term. Mortification is not repenting for sins you've done. Mortification is knowing your besetting sins and looking at them in light of Jesus Christ and incapacitating them and withering them because you rejoice in Jesus Christ as you look at those things and you say, this is ugly, I don't need this if I've got Jesus. Do you know how to do that? There should be a program. You should do that once a week, once a month, once a year. You should learn how to do it. And lastly, be expectant. There's all kinds, of, John Calvin said there's all sorts of things God wants to give you but can't give you till you pray because until you pray for them, they're not safe to give you because you won't know where they're from. Prayer is powerful. There was a evidently true story. Centuries ago, the Anglo-Saxons were invading England. And the people who were already there were the Welsh. The Welsh were Christians, the Anglo-Saxons were pagans. And one day, one of the Anglo-Saxon kings, the night before a battle, went up to a high place to look at the Welsh army and the encampment. And he noticed a bunch of people over here, in these tents over here, that didn't have any weapons. So he brought one of his uh, captains and said, who are those people over there? There's no weapons. All the rest of the army has no weapons. Who are they? And the, he was told, the king was told, those are the monks, the Welsh monks, and they come and they pray for the success of their army. And the Anglo-Saxon king says, oh, well listen, tomorrow, attack them first. He wasn't stupid. He knew more about the power of prayer than you and me. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for giving us a, uh, a sober look at the challenge. We have sins in our lives that a veneer of religiosity and even a hard uh, enforcement of morality will not only not displace, but it will aggravate. 
It will make it worse, more insidious, more pernicious. And we pray that you would help us see that it's only the radical gospel and a vital prayer life taking that gospel into our heart every day to restructure the very, the very foundations of our hearts. Only when that happens will we see true, inward, enduring, deep change. Let it be so for us in this room because we know that would glorify you and would be our greatest joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.